Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Does President Reagan Matter to Generation Z? Please welcome our host for today's program, Angela Saylor, Vice President of the Fulner Institute at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good afternoon. And on behalf of our President Kay Coles-James, thank you so much for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. Again, my name is Angela Saylor and it is my pleasure uh, to again welcome you to Does President Reagan Matter to Generation Z? You know, many people believe President Reagan served as a model for all Americans, especially conservatives. Others warn a unified conservative movement cannot be forged around old labels. The intoxication of nostalgia must be resisted. And then those, there are those who are asking, how should the nation, the movement, draw lessons from our recent history? For those who hope to preserve American democracy, the answer includes lessons learned from Reagan's leadership. We should not get stuck in a time warp and live in the shadows of yesterday. However, it is prudent to remember our history and to build on its success. President Reagan launched a conservative revolution at home and abroad by boldly advancing the cause of freedom. He transformed both the, the American political landscape and the international order. Like no other leader in modern times, Reagan embodied the ideas of the American founding and applied them to the threats and challenges of his day. So surely conservatives can still learn from his example. At the height of cancel culture, the terror of critical race theory, and the widespread unpredictability of COVID-19, there is room and opportunity to remember that a person who agrees with you 80% of the time is a friend and an ally, not a 20% traitor. We have the freedom to unite around the principles of the American founding, limited government and the separation of powers, responsible freedom in which liberty is distinguished from license, a vibrant civil society where individuals are neither radically fragmented nor collected into tribes, a market economy where men and women can use their talents to create wealth and value and a strong national defense and a foreign policy that serves American interests. Therein lies the blueprint for the uniqueness of American conservatism. At this moment, conservatives have an opportunity to come together, taking something old, something new. Towards this end, the Heritage Foundation and the Reagan Institute have intentionally decided to work together to present a lively conversation about leading a new conservative revolution that speaks to the hopes and aspirations of all Americans. We have an incredible panel lined up for you today, and it is my pleasure to introduce to you now Dr. Joseph Lacante, who serves in the Fulner's Institute as the director for the Simon Center for American Studies. He is also the AWC Family Foundation Fellow. Jill, I'm gonna turn it over to you to introduce our participants to an incredible program. 
Thanks so much, Angela. It is great to be with you guys. We we have an all-star panel. I never get invited to be on the all-star panels for reasons that are probably obvious to others and not to me, but I'm delighted to introduce this panel. And, and I want to uh, actually uh, invite all the panelists now to come online, including my co-moderator uh, for this event. I'm going to introduce everybody one at a time in turn uh, as they speak, but everybody come online right now. And uh, very brief introductions here, ladies and gentlemen. All these uh, gentlemen have very accomplished resumes. You can, you can look at them online. Let me start here with Craig Shirley. Craig Shirley has long experience in conservative politics. He campaigned as a very young boy with his parents for Barry Goldwater. Uh, he's a Reagan scholar. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, December 1941, 31 Days That Changed America and Saved the World. There's a book you got to get your hands on. Uh, let me put the question, throw it out to you here, Craig Shirley, right out of the gate, and you take it wherever you want to take it. We have conservative voices today, as you know, uh, Craig, um, that reject the principles of the American founding, that think the somehow the founders, the whole project was steeped in sin uh, from its birth, that it was somehow radically individualistic, radi radically materialistic, and anti-God, anti-religious even. There is a wing of the conservative movement right now that believes that way about the founding. My question for you, take it wherever you like, how <laughs> would Ronald Reagan respond? How would, he, how would he respond? And maybe the second part of that, Craig, is how would Reagan go about trying to unite the various factions within the conservative movement? Take it away, Craig. Uh, thank you, Joseph. Um, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to be here today. Uh, let me try to keep my arms around this. I suppose that um, the best way to approach it is, is to remember that by the time he was nominated in 1980, he'd actually been a Democrat longer than he'd been a Republican. He only changed in 1962, so he'd only been a Republican 18 years. So consequently, he didn't, talk, I, mean, I don't mean this to, I mean this to explain it. He didn't talk like a Protestant. He talked like a Catholic. He did not say I, me, or ours. He said we, us, and ours. Uh, and it, as a matter of fact, when he was president, he got a letter from John Kennedy Jr. saying, you know, a lot of people say you talk like my father. And I just want to tell you to keep on talking like my father. And in fact, he did. He didn't say like like Donald Trump says, my government, my 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 cabinet, my White House. Reagan said this government, your government, this White House. Uh, he spoke very much like like John Kennedy. And, he, and, I, and I believe it was because he was raised in a Catholic culture. He wasn't raised. Catholic himself, but his father was Catholic, uh, and I think he imbued in his son what I call a parish perspective, in that Reagan always used the uh, the plural rather than the, uh, the rather than the singular, and that made him unique and different as a Republican in 1980, and allowed him to reach over to create a coalition with uh, conservative Democrats, culturally conservative Democrats, and in fact. He got something like 40% of the Democratic vote in 1980 uh, and got uh, almost as much in uh, 1984. So he was able to fuse together the two parties, the conservative base of the Republican Party and the, and the conservative base of the Democratic Party, and, and create a winning coalition that served him well for his uh, eight years as president. Uh, Craig, thank you for that. And I'm sure we're going to dive into that more. The the amazing capacity of Reagan in his rhetoric and in his person and his philosophy to unify these disparate elements. 
it really was an astonishing achievement, wasn't it, Craig? Yes, it was. He was the only Republican uh, to 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 do things in that in that manner in that sort of way. Uh, is that he he was a new uh, uh, development for the Republican Party. Look, the Republican Party as of 1974 was dead. It really took. Reagan and the conservative movement and the populist movement, which was springing up all over the country as of 76 and 78, to bring the party back uh, with, with a fresh new set of issues that it was uh, that were not part of the Republican Party, even in 1976, whether it was being tough on the Soviets uh, or being pro-life or being for tax cuts uh, or, or being for prayer in school. There are a lot of issues that were introduced to the Republican Party in 1980, but we're not there in 1976 because of the conservative movement and because of Ronald Reagan. Yes, thank you for that, Craig. Let me keep the ball rolling here uh, and introduce Henry Now. Uh, Henry Now, he's a, he's, oh, I should say right out of the gate, he's a, a visiting scholar uh, at the Center for American Studies, the Fulner Institute here at Heritage. We're just so pleased to have him with us. He served in the Reagan administration. He's a political scientist at George Washington University and a Reagan scholar. The question I have for you, uh, Henry, uh, is this foreign policy question, and it's going on right now all around us. When when Reagan took office, America had endured the humiliation of the Iranian revolutionaries seizing American hostages. I'm certainly old enough to remember that episode. Now we have the humiliation of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan with Americans stranded in the country. What would a Reagan-like foreign policy do about it? Okay, well, thank you very much. And thanks especially to uh, both the Reagan Institute and the Heritage Foundation for, for doing this webinar. These are two institutions that care a lot, I know, about Reagan and understanding and researching the Reagan legacy. Um, there are some eerie sort of similarities between uh, today and the late 1970s. Uh, um, America and freedom in the world was in retreat. Uh, America had left Vietnam without succeeding. Um, the uh, authoritarian power of the time, the Soviet Union, was on the rise. Uh, the economic situation was uncertain. Uh, in fact, it was worse then, but, but potentially will get worse uh, in terms of our own economy today. So, so Reagan's foreign policy I, it, it really summarizes what we should be thinking about in almost any period of, um, of, of U.S. Uh, foreign policy or U.S. experience. Uh, the, the foreign policy is usually sort of summarized by the slogan, peace through strength. But it was really something more than that. It was peace with freedom through strength. Because for Reagan, freedom was always the lodestar, all right, of American foreign policy. Um, he saw the conflicts in the world in terms of ideological struggles uh, between uh, freedom and tyranny. And, and that was the struggle that he confronted in the case uh, of the Cold War. Uh, he believed that those ideological divisions drove the arms race and made it difficult to disarm or to engage in detente. And so he believed that you could only eventually resolve these differences if you could succeed in moving the Soviet Union and the world towards greater freedom. You couldn't do it simply by disarming and you couldn't do it simply by coexistence or declaring kind of a moral equivalence among countries. Now, he believed that you could only defend freedom from strength while those ideological uh, battles were going on. So strength was a key part of his approach. Uh, 
he once said that, you know, when you're as big and strong as Jack Dempsey, nobody is going to insult you. Um, and, and so he obviously built up the military very substantially. Um, but thirdly, he did this not because he believed that the weapons were going to win the ideological struggle. Ideological struggle was going to be won on other terms. Uh, and, um, and therefore, uh, it was important for him to, uh, uh, for, for diplomacy. There was an important role for diplomacy uh, to play in this whole business. We were going to resolve these issues in the end by diplomacy. He always intended to negotiate, and the literature is very clear on that. So if you take those three principles, freedom, strength, and diplomacy, it seems to me you can assess the, the present situation and what Reagan might do. He first of all asked where the major threats were, ideological threats were uh, to freedom in the world. And I think his answer would be without question, Russia, uh, the authoritarian powers of Russia and China. Um, he wouldn't ignore other threats, but he would believe that the threats from those uh, two sources were most important. And therefore the free world had to push back against those authoritarian powers in the Ukraine, for example, in the case of Russia, or in uh, now Taiwan and the coastal areas uh, around China. Uh, and that if we win those contests for freedom, we will gain a lot, um, and much more. And, and if we lose, we will lose much more than we did, um, um, than we would if we lost it in Iran, uh, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Uh, strength, I think he would put a lot of emphasis today on strength. We are weakening again our military and our economy. So he would want to revive that. But I think in this world, he would understand we can only do that really with the allies. That is, the United States is not nearly as powerful as it was uh, in 1945 or 1991 or even 2001. But the free world, which resulted from Reagan's policies, uh, is enormous and is much more powerful than it was in those previous years. So somehow or other, in the next 10 years, we've got to work with the allies to uh, balance the scale of leadership and of responsibility and resources that go into our defense. Now, that means calling upon the allies uh, to do more, not only in the security field, but also in the economic field, uh, to revisit some old trade agreements that need to be rebalanced. Yeah. Uh, I think Reagan would be strong on that. And finally, I'm coming to the conclusion here, uh, finally, uh, on diplomacy, I mean, Reagan would remind us that the reason you build up strength is to negotiate. You don't build up strength to try to win these conflicts uh, by, by force. Uh, so I, I, my, my judgment is that uh, his foreign policy of peace with freedom through strength would have an awful lot uh, to, to say about the current situation. Interesting. Fascinating, fascinating points you're making there, Henry. I mean, it's worth noting that the Iranian hostages, for example, were released on the very day that Reagan took office. Let's talk about uh, diplomacy and strength. But let me uh, let me keep it moving here with Matthew Continetti. Uh, Matthew, a journalist, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, just written a book on Ronald Reagan, Matthew, correct? Is it, is it in page proof form, Matthew? Is it coming along? Where is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my book, the, the Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, uh, will be published by BASIC in April, 2022. But you can order it, Joe, online, pre-order on Amazon. And Reagan is a central character. Um, but he's, the book isn't about Reagan, but there's no way of telling the story of American conservatism in the 20th century uh, and 21st century without talking about Ronald Reagan and what he believed. That's terrific. Thank you, Matthew. Congratulations on the book. We look forward to having you back at Heritage uh, on a little book tour over here, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, me, let me throw the question here at you, uh, Matthew. 
and take it wherever you like. What important aspect of, of Reagan's conservative political philosophy, and there's different strands to it, of course, but what, give me an important aspect do you think is being neglected today uh, to our great woe? And maybe to put it another way, what principle of conservatism would Reagan want to champion at this particular historical moment, call it historical crisis moment, if you like, but take it wherever you like there, Matthew. Sure, and thank you, Joe, and thanks to Heritage and to the Reagan Institute. The title of this panel is, Does Reagan Matter to Generation Z? And so I wanna begin by answering that question. Yes, he does matter, but uh, in order for him to matter, Generation Z needs to learn about Ronald Reagan. I was born in 1981, the year he was inaugurated, so I do still have memories of Ronald Reagan as a president. And of course, I lived through um, the great consequences of his presidency. Those are very real to me as well. But for many, for all of Generation Z, if you're listening to this or watching it, you have no memory of Ronald Reagan. So how do we get a memory of Ronald Reagan, what he achieved, but also more importantly, I think what he believed in, because it's what he believed in that is relevant to the 21st century. So uh, I collect collections of Ronald Reagan speeches. Uh, they're available online. I have one right here. This came out last year by Sentinel Publishing, The Heart of a Great Nation. Marco Rubio uh, contributed the foreword, but they're also available for free. The Reagan Foundation has many of his major speeches and uh, the Reagan Library has every single Reagan speech available. And I uh, truly encourage all the young people uh, attending this event to take some time out uh, on the weekend, or, or maybe not the weekend, enjoy your weekend. But you know, in between studying or when you're avoiding studying, go to these <laughs> resources and learn about what Ronald Reagan uh, believed, what he said, because words were extremely important to him. He was a master communicator and uh, he paid very close attention to the words he related. Now, so of course we can learn to Reagan. We take inspiration from the founders as American conservatives. We take inspiration from Abraham Lincoln. So we can take inspiration from our great presidents such as Coolidge and uh, Reagan as well. Uh, it's funny to me, um, conservatives are always asking ourselves, is Reagan relevant? Well, liberals have no problem, maybe it's because they believe in recycling, in turning again and again to FDR, right? The big, one of the big ideas in the so-called social policy bill that is making its way through Congress right now is a climate conservation core, a total ripoff from the CCC in the original New Deal. So here we are, uh, almost a century after the New Deal, liberals are still turning to FDR for inspiration. And who are they con comparing Biden to, but FDR and to FDR's successor, LBJ. So obviously as conservatives, we can continue to look to Reagan for inspiration. But just because if we're looking to Reagan's values and principles for guidance, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to mimic every single policy. And I think sometimes conservatives get confused between policy and principle. Finally, just to say what, what aspect of Reagan's principles or values I think could be most important to young people today, I would, I would refer everyone to his farewell address in January 1989 when he spoke to the White House. And Reagan, it was a valedictory, but it was also like many farewell addresses that contained a warning. And the warning was this, I quote, our spirit is back, Reagan said, but we haven't reinstitutionalized it. We've got to do better a better job of getting across that America is freedom. And you asked which principle of conservatism he would stress, it was always freedom. America is freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. Then Reagan's goes on, I am warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result 
ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. And I think if we look at the culture war battles that are happening today, we see that Reagan's warning has come true. It is an erosion of American memory that is leading, rather it's an eradication of American memory and history and tradition that is leading to an erosion of the American spirit. How do we restore this? I'll just very quickly say, Reagan had a series of concepts that he worked into his major speeches beginning in 1978, and which of course drew from the speeches earlier. It was called the litany, right? And there were five words written on a banner at the 1980 Republican convention. The five words were these, family, work, peace, neighborhood, freedom. So if we, as we go about trying to recapture that new American patriotism that Ronald Reagan brought back to our country for a time and needs to be reinstitutionalized, I think turning to the litany, family, work, peace, neighborhood, freedom, is the beginning uh, of an answer. Thanks. Matthew, that is just a brilliant seminar you have given us in five minutes and you've delivered it with Reagan-like eloquence. I really appreciate that, sir. Thank you so much. Let me uh, introduce my co-moderator here. Tunku Varadarajan, Tunku, a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at New York uh, University School of Law, editorial page uh, contributing writer at the Wall Street Journal, as we like to say in my business, that is serious editorial real estate. Uh, and I always learn and benefit from every column from Tunku. So a tremendous resource. Also, as you notice there uh, at the American Enterprise Institute. So Tunku, let me just turn it over to you uh, with our panelists. Uh, thank, thanks, Joe. Uh, I, I, I feel you've asked um, all the best questions already. Uh, but um, I have a few of my own, and I'm going to throw them sequentially uh, at our panelists, starting with Craig Shirley. Uh, Craig, here's, here's a question for you. Um, what would Reagan make of uh, the direction that today's conservatism and today's uh, Republican Party have taken? Uh, and, and as a as a sort of special additional question, uh, which politicians would he, Ronald Reagan, see as kindred spirits? Oh, thank you for the easy question. <laughs> uh, I think I think if Reagan were alive today, he would shake his head. You, I think you said direction of the conservative movement. There is no direction of the conservative movement today, uh, except in opposition uh, when it can. But otherwise, it seems to be just wandering in the desert and for maybe uh, 40 years or maybe longer. Uh, it doesn't seem to have a rejoinder or an answer as Reagan did uh, to the, uh, and this is low hanging fruit for the Republican Party. It was true to its beliefs of conservatism and maximum freedom. As Reagan said in 1964, maximum freedom consistent with law and order uh, is that is that the, the, there is so much to go after with the Biden administration, with so many of these nutty proposals uh, and these uh, these crazy ideas. There's something that should be said about them every day of the week, uh, every minute of the day. Uh, and yet the Republican Party, the conservative movement, don't seem to be able to take up the banner and respond. And the other thing too that Reagan understood was, and this is critically important, you you, you have to, you know, you can't replace something with nothing. You've got to have a, a better idea, and I believe I believe I am a conservative. Is that because I approach this intellectually? I think is that our ideas are better than their ideas. 
I truly believe that. And that Reagan, uh, throughout his life, as he, as he refined himself and refined his conservatism, refined his message, refined his ideology, by 1979, by 1980, was offering not just a criticism of Carter, of big government, uh, big government uh, uh, solutions, uh, or controls, regulations, taxes, whatever. Uh, he knew, he knew that uh, power cannot be destroyed. Power can only be moved around. So, and and power had been moving away from individual toward the state since 1932, and he wanted to reverse that trend, but he needed a message to, to be compelling to the American people, and that's what he developed. You know, the, the, everybody thinks the personal tax cuts and capital gains tax cuts are about uh, the individual or about, uh, or about uh, the economy. They're not. He told, I remember I was there, he told a group of us in 1981, he said, yeah, they're about the economy, and yeah, they're about, you know, getting this, the economy going again, but really, it's about the individual. He wanted to restore, he saw uh, cutting taxes as a means of taking power away from the national government and restoring it to the individual. That's what his ultimate goal was. He was, as Matthew and uh, Henry and everybody else has noted, is that he was always about freedom. That was his, that was his, anim that was his motivating factor. He had a, he had a group of White House speechwriters were the best in the history of the White House. It was like an in-house think tank. It was his, his favorite agency or department in the uh, White House. And they, too, were all uh, uh, motivated by freedom. We're all conservatives who, who, you know, sat around every day thinking of new ideas, taking new ideas, coming up with suggestions, arguing, cajoling, or whatever, and working with him to communicate his freedom-based message uh, to the American people and to the world. The second part of your question is, is there somebody on the horizon today? The answer is no. Uh, I'm sorry. Is that, uh, you know, the interesting thing about Reagan, uh, uh, I was there, I watched it, and I studied it too. Reagan was never controlled by consultants, you know, and consultants tried to say, well, you can't say tear down this wall. He said, BS, I'm saying tear down this wall. Uh, consultants would say, you can't say the Vietnam War was a noble cause. And Reagan said, Yes, I'm going to say the Vietnam War was a noble cause. He was marked by this, uh, by this stubbornness his entire career, especially uh, as president. Uh, and today's party and political leaders are too often controlled by consultants who tell them to trim their sails and tone down their message and say it like this. And they got them so confused and so uh, dismayed, they don't know what to say. What it comes out is bland oatmeal instead of, uh, you know, as Reagan said, uh, you know, no past, past, no pale pastels, but, but sharp colors. He, he spoke in sharp colors, and today's politicians really don't speak in sharp colors. Let, let, me, let me rephrase my second question, uh, which was, uh, you know, which politicians would he see as kindred spirits and turn it into a version of the question that uh, drives this uh, seminar? Uh, instead of asking, does Reagan matter to Generation Z or Generation Z, as I was trained to call it, uh, could we ask fruitfully whether Reagan matters to the Republican Party? Just a, uh, just to kind of yeah, no, thank you. Uh, I think he matters because he, he he himself and his White House were an idea factory, uh, unlike uh, unlike uh, the Bush Bush both Bush's White House 
and unlike uh, a lot of the, the, not entirely, but a lot of the Trump White House. So we looked to him for inspiration because they were always coming up with new ideas. SDI was a new idea. Tax cuts were a new idea. Standing up to the Soviets were a new idea. Uh, defending the unborn baby was a new idea. These, these and a thousand other new ideas, which became inspirations for his party and for his presidency, were constantly springing forward. And that's what I see lacking today is a lack of new, new ideas. And I think it's because of the consulting class is so taken over the Republican Party that it prevents politicians from taking risks. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan took a lot of risks in his life. Let me give you just one example. In 1978, uh, when he was ex-governor, but getting ready to run for president one more time, there was a, 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 an amendment in uh, California called the Briggs Amendment, named after State Senator John Briggs. And uh, what it said was that it would prevent uh, openly uh, gay individuals from teaching in public schools. Uh, and uh, they couldn't advocate a, a, a gay lifestyle. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't, you know, and Reagan actually Went, flew in the face of the of the of the family movement and the, you know Phyllis Shapley and uh, Howie Phillips and and Richard Vigory and Paul Wark and all them who, who were who had considerable muscle in the in the party in those days uh, and were on the side of the Briggs Amendment. Reagan campaigned against it. Reagan said this is a violation of the rights and the individual and dignity of, of the individual, the privacy of the individual. And I don't, you know, if it might hurt my campaign, I don't give a damn. I'm still campaigning against it. And it went down to a crashing defeat, lost 60-40. And when Briggs was asked after the uh, after the referendum failed, he said, why did it fail? And he answered with two words, Ronald Reagan. Thanks, Craig. Um, uh, just to remind the audience that we, we'll be drawing you in when the panelists have finished answering my question. So please start thinking about questions you want to send in. Don't leave it to the last minute. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Henry uh, now uh, the next question, and we're going to switch from um, American domestic politics and ideology to foreign policy. Um, and this is a version of the question that Joe asked, but a slightly different nuance. Uh, what, would, what would Reagan make of world affairs today, particularly the superpower competition we have with China, which is somewhat different from the one that we had in Reagan's time with Russia. Um, and, and my follow-up question to that is, how would, he, how would he evaluate the role that the US is choosing to play in the world today? What would he make of it? Thanks. Yeah, I, you know, I think that he would have, as I mentioned, uh, he would have uh, looked at the central borders of freedom in the world today, which 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 has expanded dramatically, uh, I think young people need to understand that. Uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, something like 60 countries became free. I mean, this was under the impact of a lot of the developments that Reagan set into motion, um, and we had this incredible opening in the 1990s, uh, in which all of Europe, for the first time ever in history, became free, and many non-Western countries in Asia. Uh, Japan, uh, South Korea became free. Um, now that world is very powerful, that free world. It's more powerful than just the United States alone. One of the reasons why I think we need to think now over the next, and Reagan would think over the next 10 or 20 years of how to um, strengthen that common world. But it's in greatest danger on its borders. And China obviously is on that border in the coastal uh, you know, regions of Asia. 
And then, of course, uh, Eastern Europe is on that border uh, with respect to uh, Russia. I think that would be prominent. I don't know that he would exaggerate it. It's not the combined threat that the Soviet Union represented. You know, the Soviet Union was a global threat. Well, China may become that. It isn't yet currently a global threat equivalent to uh, the United States, to the Soviet Union. Uh, but but he would be designing, I think, a way to deter the Chinese. That's going to be difficult, by the way, because we're deterring now on water for the most part, rather than on land. So our military is going to have to really think this one through. Uh, and he would also be thinking about how where he wants to move China. What what's what's the direction in which he wants to move it? What could we try to achieve uh, to move China a little bit more towards openness? Now we tried the whole you know strategy of opening our market. Uh, to China and getting them involved in the world economy. Well, it hasn't worked out too well so far, but I'm not sure Reagan would give up on that. Uh, he would, of course, make sure now that we don't risk any you know, serious loss of military technology and other important uh, items in our trade with China. But I suspect he'd want to keep that at least in the wing. Let China decouple if it wants to decouple, but don't necessarily do that aggressively from our side. So I think he has a lot to say, uh, frankly, to uh, how we deal not just with China, but but keep a global perspective on uh, where we are. Right, because in Reagan's time, it was freedom as represented by the United States versus unfreedom as represented by the Soviet Union. But it was a bankrupt Soviet Union. Today, our freedom uh, battles unfreedom that is rich, that is bristling with money, that is that is out to buy the world. I mean, how would what would how would Reagan's philosophy have countered the yuan, China's banknotes? Yeah, well, as I say, I think he'd have been much more aware of the threat that China poses in this regard than the former Soviet Union, because the former Soviet Union was never engaged seriously in the world economy, uh, and really didn't become rich during the Cold War. Just the opposite. Um, but on the other hand, I think he would also understand and he would emphasize uh, the, the problems that an authoritarian country like China faces and the kind of corner that China may be backing itself into uh, by virtue of trying not only to become rich and open and creative, but also to become dominated by a single party, if not by a single man. We're already seeing that you know, monolith sort of beginning to crack up a bit. In China. So I think he would think that, look, we need to protect ourselves and especially our allies in Asia, but uh, we shouldn't overstate this threat. We should deter it, but then also recognize that there are going to be some rough times ahead for China. There are going to be some big bumps on the road uh, for China. And, uh, uh, and maybe at some point we can nudge China in, in a somewhat more liberalized democratic direction. That's a very, very long shot, but I think he would have that in mind because the whole point of foreign policy is to try to increase the domain of free countries who live in peace with one another and diminish the domain of unfree countries uh, who are in fact the source of most of the threats in the international system. Quick quick question before I move on to Matthew Continetti. Uh, and, and I know I shouldn't say quick question and ask you a question of about, about Afghanistan. But if, if, if Reagan were looking down on Kabul today, what would he make of the way in which America pulled out? I know that Joe talked about the humiliation of Afghanistan and how it echoes the humiliation of Tehran. What would he, what would he, he, he looking down on Kabul, what would he make of it all? What would he make of the withdrawal 
the 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 general the the, the chaos. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think he would um, um, he would certainly think that the withdrawal was kind of poorly done. But would he think that the whole effort in Afghanistan was a noble cause, hmm? the way you know he felt about Vietnam? Um, and my guess would be that um, he would. I still I think he would say it was a noble cause. We had to go there. We had to uh, defeat the Taliban initially, and we had to uh, stop the, um, the the terrorism in that uh, country that was threatening us, and that did threaten us on 9/11. So. Um, we needed to be there, but I, you know, it's hard to know whether. He, by the way, he 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 was very careful during his time not to get distracted uh, by conflicts that might be less significant than the ones on the borders of existing freedom. He he didn't get distracted by Lebanon. He didn't get distracted by Grenada or even by Central America. You know, his focus was on the Soviet Union and on Europe, Soviet Union in Europe and in Asia. And I think that's the kind of focus he would uh, retain today. Uh, I hope, and, and, and he might have thought of this as well, but I hope that we find a way in the future to deal with terrorism from striking it hard when it emerges, but then getting out of these places pretty quickly, staying over the horizon, maybe leaving our allies in charge of on-ground intelligence and special op uh, uh, operations. We, we need to become more subtle and, and, and nuanced in how we deal with these things. We can't intervene in every single country that potentially threatens us with with um, with, uh, with with terrorism. And, and, and Reagan, if, if anything, he was a man who understood priorities. I could tell a little story about that, but uh, I've said enough. Th thank you. I'd love to hear that, but let's let's circle back to it when we if we have time later on. Uh, Matt, can't, uh, tell us um, again one of those <laughs> Uh, please treat this question seriously, not uh, as something that sounds hokey. Uh, would, would, would Reagan win the election today if he could run for president, uh, given the way America is? And, and if he did, would he keep his philosophical templates the way they were in his campaigns of the 1970s and the 80s? Or would he be trying for something different, radically different? Sure, thank you. I would say a few things. I do think Ronald Reagan would win. Um, uh, mainly because he was a political uh, genius and a rare political talent, which I think stemmed from the fact that he didn't become a politician until late middle age, right? <laughs> he didn't change his party registration into not, until 1962, at which point he was 51 years old. His first political communication was the speech, the legendary televised address he gave on behalf of Barry Goldwater that aired about a week before the election in October 1964. At that point, Reagan was 53 years old. Craig mentioned rightly the malign influence of consultants on the on politics in general. And one reason I think Reagan may have been immune to consultants was that he was old. He was he was grown up, <laughs> and so he had, he knew what he believed, and he didn't really need to listen to people um, wishing him otherwise or telling him otherwise. I mean, he had already succeeded in the realms of radio, film, and television before he began his uh, meteoric political ascent. So I do think he would win, but he would not necessarily win by the margins he enjoyed um, in 1980 and 1984, or the margin his successor, George H.W. Uh, Bush, enjoyed in 1988. America is a much more closely divided country now. That doesn't mean that um, it's a one-party 
uh, system at the federal level, far from it. I've lived through every single possible permutation of American government when you look at partisan control in the, over the course of my lifetime. And it switches actually with great frequency um, in, in the last 20 years. So Reagan could win, but he probably would not win by the, the, the margins he enjoyed. Now, um, would he uh, change his, his campaign platform? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Reagan of 1964 was not the Reagan of 1976 when he challenged an incumbent Republican president um, and lost the nomination. Uh, and the Reagan of 1976 was not the Reagan of 1980 either. Uh, new elements had come into the, co uh, the coalition. He was uh, trying new issues. The Panama Canal issue was very important in 1976. That was the, his nationalist rallying cry. We built it, we paid for it, it's ours. By 1980, that issue had faded and more of other issues, uh, most especially including uh, inflation and stagflation, um, as well as the Soviet advances, uh, beginning with the invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, were much, much more important. So I, I think he would shift uh, his, his platform to accommodate the new issues. Uh, now, as we enter you know, the, uh, the uh, third decade of the 21st century, Right, but Reagan himself would not change. And I just want to mention three qualities that I think are very important to understanding Ronald Reagan and that aspiring politicians in the audience should try to uh, emulate. The first is Ronald Reagan's future orientation. For a conservative, this is very unusual. Conservatives like the past, we're the party of tradition. But Ronald Reagan was always looking to the future. In fact, he had a weird habit of think, saying that it was liberals who were the reactionaries. It was liberals who wanted to return to what he described as a 19th century ideology of socialism. He wanted to pursue the imagination into the future and embrace what the future had to bring. It's a very important quality. And I think voters respond to candidates who have a future orientation. Another quality is Reagan's uh, self-containment. He was a very unusual person. It was almost as if he was playing a role for his entire adult life. Um, he, he, statesmen often have to wear masks of leadership. And the mask of Ronald Reagan was the character that you see when you go on YouTube. He was the leading man. And he had a twinkle in his eye. He was always smiling. And he was, he was almost perfectly unflappable. Very rare that anything got under his skin. Now, compare that self-containment to the situation we have in American politics and culture today where the self is spilled out, <laughs> the self is everywhere. And I think Reagan would both react in horror, but he might actually have a comparative advantage in the new political system because he wouldn't let anything get under his skin. Um, he would. I, it's interesting to think about social media in relation to Ronald Reagan. I don't know if he'd be very good at Twitter in all honesty, but he would be great at YouTube and be excellent at podcasting, right? So you have to think about which of these media actually um, boost uh, boost his qualities versus ones that he might be uh, unfamiliar with or actually uncomfortable with um, the, the way in which Twitter functions. And finally, of course, Reagan's secret weapon was his sense of humor. Um, his, his cutting wit, which is often celebrated, is actually a, a political force multiplier. And that, this is, goes throughout his speeches and, and it, the most clear example of this, and uh, on which I'll end, is his famous remark in the 19, second debate in 1984 against uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale, where it was a real issue, especially after Reagan was seen to have flubbed the first debate with Mondale. 
um, that people were saying, much as they say about the current occupant in the, in the White House, that he was too old, he was getting too old um, for the office. And Reagan was asked about this in the debate. And, uh, and he said famously, you know, he said, um, you know, it's become up, the age has come up. And he said, well, I'm, not, uh, I'm gonna say it right here that I will not make an issue of my opponent's youth and inexperience in this campaign. And everyone laughed, including his opponent. And that's mm -hmm. the point at which it was over. I mean, he was probably gonna win anyway, but it was just over. You have your opponent laughing with you. Um, that's an, it's an acknowledgement of your political dominance. And, and so these three things, um, the future orientation, being self-contained and imperturbable, uh, and then the sense of humor, I think would be very important to any Reaganite running today. Quick question before I open it up to the audience. I want to leave about 10 minutes for audience questions. Uh, what would Reagan make of our present American conversation about race? Well, I, I'll just take a quick stab at it. I mean, Reagan was very clear in 1980 when he said there was no room for racism in the Republican Party. Um, he uh, initially was skeptical of the making Martin Luther King Jr. Day a federal holiday, but he then signed the bill and gave a quite moving uh, talk uh, with the King family in the White House when he signed that bill. But Reagan, of course, was opposed to affirmative action and so, uh, and and did a, his Justice Department did quite a bit in order to fight against uh, racial quotas, and so as to uh, boost the idea of color blindness, which is a central value in Reaganism, and also merit, uh, which is another that the individual uh, needs to uh, succeed on his or her merits, uh, and we, people can be helped, but no one should be uh, uh, torn down or denied a place. Uh, on the on the basis of an immutable characteristic such as race. Well, thank you. Uh, I've got some questions uh, pouring in, if I can put it that way. Uh, some of them clearly from uh, members of Gen Z itself, and um, I'm going to try to um, elevate those to to the first question that I ask. Uh, and here's one which uh, is from um, a person from Gen Z, uh, who says. Uh, uh, that his generation is only familiar with the presidencies of Obama and Trump. What comparisons, what comparisons can you draw between Reagan and these two former presidents? And I'm going to throw it open to any of you who wishes to answer this one. You can just jump in. Um, I, you know, I'll take a first crack at it. Uh, um, it, it. It would, it would be pretty hard to. Um, you know, identify um, either of those two men with Reagan. Uh, they emphasized sort of the alternative perspectives that always play a role in our debate about foreign policy. Uh, Obama was very internationalist, um, you know, went on a worldwide tour to, uh, to kind of uh, uh, initiate a discussion, open hand with uh, the Muslim world, uh, ready to kind of uh, publicly apologize for America mistakes and so on, very cosmopolitan, um, um, maybe some might argue a little bit less sort of focused on American national interests per se. Trump was just the opposite. Obviously, he was a nationalist in many respects who put America first and thought only about American uh, or mostly about American interests and, 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 and didn't want to engage that much in diplomacy. Um, uh, Reagan combined these things in, in, in a remarkable way. I call it conservative internationalism. 
but he thought about um, the country and its interests, but he thought about the country in terms of its values and its principles. Uh, and he knew that the country was important worldwide, that we were a country that one of the first, the first country to try to build a republic without a monarchy and a state church. And that the whole world, we were the city on the hill, the whole world was going to look at us to see whether or not we succeed. And in that sense, uh, Reagan, of course, engaged the world on behalf of freedom, was an internationalist on behalf of freedom. So, you know, I think comments about whether Reagan, how Reagan would fit into the current debate um, are, are, are very, um, you know, helpful here, because I think he would change the subject and say, wait a minute, it's not either Obama or Trump, it's, it, it's, it's another way to think about uh, yeah. the world. Uh, that was a pretty comprehensive answer. So I'm going to move on to the next question, actually, which is, uh, and maybe either Craig or Matt can answer this one. Uh, which book on Reagan would you recommend to inspire millenni millennials and Gen Zers? Besides my own? Yeah, I was going to say, Craig's. Yeah, no, besides my own. By the way, I'm uh, working on three more about Reagan. But um, uh, there is one book that really stands out in my mind, besides Henry's book. Um, it, it, and this is interesting. Uh, John Patrick Diggins was a uh, was a was a uh, professor at Berkeley, and actually was part of the free speech movement, and did battle uh, with Reagan during the 1960s when Reagan was governor. He later changed his stripes and wrote a book uh, in the 1990s called Ronald Reagan: Fate, Freedom, and the Making of History. And in this, this one-time liberal college professor says that uh, by his by his criteria, great presidents save or free many, many people. And by that standard, he and his book wrote, said that Reagan was one of our four greatest presidents alongside Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Roosevelt because they freed or saved many, many people. So I, I, I find this book interesting because it, uh, it tells about how Reagan was able to uh, hold the neocons at bay during the eight years of his presidency, uh, but, but how, but how, how he was thinking, and what is, uh, what, what was, what was the thought process? And that book, for me, has always stood out as a singularly interesting book on Ronald Reagan. I know uh, Paul Kengor and Stephen Hayward also bear mentioning uh, they've written some excellent, excellent books uh, uh, on Reagan. But I, but I still go back to uh, John Patrick Diggins because he has such an interesting story and an interesting take on what qualifies as a great president. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, there's another question. Uh, how did Reagan redraw the social and economic lines of the conservative, conservative coalition? And can conservatives today pull off something similar? Maybe Matt can take that. Well, uh, it, it, around uh, 1975, uh, 1976, uh, Reagan gave a speech called the New um, uh, Republican Party, uh, which is a very, a very important speech at CPAC. Um, uh, and Reagan addressed CPAC multiple times in his career and actually every year of his presidency. And even those speeches, if you just read those speeches, you get a great portrait of what American conservatism looked like and what was important to Reagan. Uh, during his time. In the New Republican Party speech, though, Reagan said, uh, kind of alluding uh, to what Craig was saying at the top of the hour, 
uh, that in the mid-1970s, after Watergate, after the collapse of uh, South Vietnam, the Republican Party was basically moribund. And there, were, there was uh, the conventional wisdom held that uh, it was basically uh, going to go the way of the dodo. And Reagan himself, and actually around the same time in an interview with 60 Minutes, said that if the Republican Party didn't change its principles and didn't uh, begin a broadcasting to uh, a new constituencies and um, new groups of voters, then it would deserve <laughs> to go the way of the dodo. So what did that mean? Well, it meant that uh, it meant that Reagan appealed to independent voters and conservative leaning Democrats. And the good news for Republicans is there's still a lot of those voters out there. <laughs> Actually, the independent voters are more than uh, either party. And even if, when you look at the Democratic Party, more and more Democrats identify as liberal. A majority of the Democratic Party identifies as liberal now. It's about 51%. But that means the other 49% is composed of either self-identified moderate Democrats or even a dwindling number of conservative-leaning Democrats. So Reagan made sure that his messages would appeal to all of those groups. He wasn't narrow casting, he was broadcasting, and he was doing it in the language, this language that I kind of brought up of, of American principles and values. You know, and one thing very important about Reagan, Reagan was a populist, there's no question about it, but he was a populist without a scapegoat. And I think this is very important to understand. The people, we the people were right, right? That was Reagan deeply believed that and believed the constitution institutionalized that concept. But the bad, the bad guys were not our fellow citizens. The bad guys were the, appar the, the uh, apparatus of government, right? Kind of this, this permanent structure of government were the words he used to describe it in a faraway capital, another phrase that he liked. That's, he was always redirecting populist sentiment there, not against our fellow citizens. And I think that's an important lesson today uh, for for everyone, including our populists, yeah, we've we've got we've got a, a, mi a minute left, literally, and so I'm going to invite you to answer in one sentence um, my last closing question. Uh, if there was one thing you'd want people to remember Ronald Reagan for, what would that be? Just a line from each of you, and then I'll hand over to Roger Zakheim for his closing remarks. You want? He restored American morale, he defeated the Soviet Union, and he created a, a new American economy. He was the, you know, the, the, the flagship, in my mind, of American republicanism with a little r. He believed in limited government, he believed in the public square, and most of all, he believed in individual human beings that they could make good judgments if they got both sides of an argument. He didn't think of people in terms of groups um uh, as we do so much today his advisor uh, richard allen once asked him what's his strategy for the cold war governor reagan and reagan looked at allen and said we win they lose and we won wonderful on that note um I, i'm gonna zip and hand over to mr zaka well, thank you, Tunku, Matt, Greg, Henry, and Joe. Uh, really splendid conversation on President Reagan, uh, the impact of his policies, and really most importantly, the continued influence of his legacy on this young generation of American citizens, um, which of course, I'll include all of us in that group. Uh, my name is Roger Zakheim, and I'm director of the Ronald Reagan Institute 
the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation's home in our nation's capital. And we're really grateful today to have partnered with the Heritage Foundation on, on this event. And when we prepare for the event today, I found myself thinking not only why does President Reagan matter to Gen Z, but does President Reagan matter to Gen Z? In fact, I think Tunku uh, anticipated this and, and pulled a thread on that. You know, those who are born not only after his presidency, but after the end of the Cold War, as we just hit on. Um, and with over 400 registered attendees, and including junior high students, undergraduates, and young professionals from across America uh, who took a break from social media, homework, and lunch, uh, I think the answer is, is pretty clear. President Reagan absolutely matters to this generation. And these panelists, I think you all agree, did a fantastic job spelling out the reasons why. From President Reagan's peace through strength, or rather, as I think as Henry spelled it out, peace through freedom by strength, to the everlasting power of his beliefs, even beyond the impact of his policies. And I think uh, Matt Condonetti hit on that versus I mean, kind of subtle remark of versus narrow casting versus broadcasting. So despite President Reagan being 73 and the oldest president in American history at his second inauguration, he really did capture the hearts and imaginations of millions of young Americans. An 18-year-old college student even said, quote, I like his personality, his sense of humor, his strength. Uh, when he left office in 1989, as Craig Shirley taught me early on when I joined the Reagan Institute, President Reagan had an 85% approval rating among young people. I think any young president would dream of those numbers. So with so much instability and divisiveness in today's politics, I think the participation of young people in this webinar and the conversation amongst this distinguished group of panelists serves as a reminder that President Reagan's eternal optimism, humor, and principled nature of conviction remain popular among American youth and will continue now, as they did then, to inspire a new generation of Americans united not divided. So it's only fitting to end today's event with President Reagan's own words, and I quote, the future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted, it belongs to the brave. Thank you for joining today.